0: When I was an Army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. This first judge, the um, first major judge that's named is Ehud um, still a name that people name their babies in Israel and Jewish families around the world, but especially in Israel. Uh, Ehud stands for someone who uses his unique abilities, being left-handed, to, and subterfuge and espionage to do something that nobody else could do getting rid of King Eglon of the Moabites. Um, he makes the sword for himself. He's left-handed. The sword is a cubit in length. There's, sorry, there's different um, interpretations of how big a cubit is. And some would say it's about 18 inches, others maybe 12 inches. Hard to know. Somewhere between there. When we when we hear the word sword used in the Bible, we often think of like a sword from Braveheart, the two-handed sword, or a medieval sword, or maybe um, one of those thin ones that in Shakespeare, they're always waving around at each other. But swords were fairly short. This is the Bronze Age, which Bronze Age, Iron Age, Stone Age—all refers to the kind of weapons and tools that people were leaving and making. They had to make them themselves, um, or you'd had to know somebody that could make a sword. It was incredibly difficult to smelt iron ore out of a um, out of the rock, or the other metals that make bronze, tin, and other uh, softer metals, but he makes this, this dagger, this sword, uh, and sharpens both edges. The, the word Hebrew word for edge is the word lip. And so whenever you see the expression in the Bible, the old Testament, that people were devoured by the edge of the sword, it really is saying they are devoured by the lip of the sword. The sword becomes a consuming um, tongue, if you will, or something with like teeth. It's a a consuming thing. The sword that he makes, he hides on his right thigh under his tunic. Uh, So if there was a pat down, they would pat down the opposite side of your sword hand, I imagine. It's hard to know how he got the sword in there, but um, he sneaks it in. He gets in there to where King Eglon is. He goes by these idols, these sculptured stones near Gilgal. It seems like there is a line of demarcation marked by sculpted stones or standing stones, or the word is idols or carved image. Thou shalt not make any carved images. So he has gone into the land of the idolaters, the land of Moab, hallmarked by their worship of gods that are antithetical to Yahweh, to the Lord. And we wonder why he has to do this. Well, the text tells us, Judges tells us, in the first verses that Barbara read, chapter 3 of Judges, verse 12, Israelites did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened King Eglon of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil. We can see that uh, to be God's chosen people at this time doesn't mean that life is easy and there's no challenges. In fact, it means that life is really hard. And, And especially in this moment, it is the Lord, Yahweh, their God, who fights for them and protects them, has decided to strengthen their enemy. Why God does this? Hard to say. Why would God strengthen the enemy, King Eglon of Moab? Um, give, why would he, God give him more power? Well, there's, there's a relationship between God and God's people. And the relationship is such that sometimes God uses external locuses of control, loci of control, Um, when they don't have internal locus of control. In other words, sometimes they need a pat on the back and sometimes a pat a little lower, as they say. I don't know. It seems like this is kind of harsh and difficult. Um, We know that God does work through adversity. We think of the story of um, St. Paul, where... Jesus says to him in the vision after he's thrown off his horse, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goads? There are ox goads like a sharp, semi-sharp stick that you use to kind of get oxen going in a certain direction. And, um, you know, that is what God has been doing to Saul. um, Trying to poke him to get him going in the right direction. I don't know if you have ever experienced this. It's hard to know sometimes what God is doing in our lives through adversity. We have to be careful to, one, not tell someone else what God is doing in their life through adversity. When something bad happens to somebody, it's not good to tell them why it happened. Suddenly we become Job's friends. There's a whole book of the Bible about how not to do that or why not to do it. Because we don't really know, and when we speculate to make people feel better, or make them, make us feel better generally, we usually say some pretty foolish things. I guess God needed your child in heaven, or whatever we say to make ourselves feel better, to fill the silence. Um, and the other reason that we, um, the other the other reason we, we must be careful when we are faced with adversity and try to say why it's happening is um, because sometimes things are unexplainable. There are things called tragedies in life that are really unexplainable. We can't really always find a source for them. Um, Dr. Baker, in his lecture to us on Sunday at church, after church, um, shared some of the ways in which Christians have understood why bad things happen to people in a really winsome and beautiful way. That recording is on our website uh, if you want to watch it again or watch it for the first time. But he talks about why do bad things happen to people, to good people? What do you do with this tragedy part of life or awful evil things that seem to happen out of nowhere, undeserving as we are? Um, So we must be careful not to ascribe something to God that isn't God. But you will know, when you reflect back on your life, maybe from a year out or 10 years out or 20 years out or 50, um, you'll probably be able to tell where God was trying to get you to go, where God was putting some adversity in your path, um, or at least where that adversity happened that led you back to God. Uh, Those are things that we can look back on and discern and determine and celebrate and praise God for, but also question God about, why did I have that happen to me? Why did that hardship, difficult thing, why did Eglon, king of Moab, become very powerful? He's not just powerful. He's described here as very few people are in the Bible. Uh, His weight is described here he is pictured as a very um prosperous king um people of all shapes and sizes have existed throughout human history um and yet in times of scarcity before factory farming comes into play um most people in most cultures around the world were relatively small um the, the struggle of the modern world, the several billion dollar industry that we are engaged in every day and enticed with and threatened with um, to lose weight um, as Americans and lots of people around the world. Um, that's our struggle as modern humans. How do we get back to where our ancestors were weight-wise because of scarcity? I think it's a better problem to have to be worried about losing weight rather than worrying about having enough to eat. Um, And yet so much, um, it's really even hard to read this text without attaching to it a lot of stuff that we carry with us from diet culture and fitness culture that is really, really um, bad for us as humans to shame ourselves and be shamed by society or by others or our expectations about our weight, and if we're valuable, or if God loves us, uh, depending on what weight we are. So I want to just lift that up as a warning uh, for all of us to, to not um, bring that stuff into this text. Um, Eglon, king of Moab, is a really bad guy. He's done bad, bad things, and he's going to continue to do them. And his um, description as being very fat, which is the very raw way the hebrew describes it um is uh is really about his opulence his conspicuous consumption um the pharaohs built pyramids uh to show how much they had to waste they could waste all this money and resources on something that they're not even going to see after they die but everybody else will conspicuous consumption is still part of our culture although now if you're rich enough, you can almost pay uh, to to look a certain way or have the body that you've always wanted or something like that, or that you think, uh, that we think will get people to like us or love us. And that is often um, part of the toxic part of, of diet culture. But Eglon is a conspicuous consumer. That is kind of how he's pictured here. Um... And and Ehud, this assassin, plays it close to the chest. I have a secret message for you, O king. Why the king would allow him to come in with a secret message is beyond me, but um, apparently he was able to do it. The king says, silence, and all his attendants leave from his presence. And Ehud came to them, he's sitting alone in his roof chamber, likely on the toilet, likely. That's kind of where many have pictured him, given the idiomatic expressions here. It's hard to know what he's doing up there. But um, there he is. And Ehud then changes the message from I have a secret message for you to I have a message from God for you. And the message of God for for Eglon, king of Moab, is that Ehud reaches with his left hand, takes a sword from his right thigh and thrusts it into King Eglon. Um, the, the, the word sinister in English means left handed in Latin. Um, so people have always perceived left handed people as being different and strange, and maybe even evil, or at least tricky. My grandmother was left-handed, and she was forced to write with her right hand and was very talented with both hands, able to do a lot of arts and crafts and sports and things um, because she was forced to be ambidextrous, as many kids were of her generation and beyond. Um, But left-handedness is a gift from God. It's just the way God made some people and um, we ought to celebrate that rather than trying to see something bad. But you can see that even the handshake in modern culture is predicated on the fact that you would carry a weapon in your right hand. So showing the empty hand, touching the empty hand with the other hand that's empty of weapons, um, is probably the origin of the handshake. And it only works if everybody's right-handed. Castles are built to defend from the top by right-handed people going down those spiral staircases, the shield in your left arm. So the staircase always goes clockwise rather than counterclockwise. So you can defend. The whole world is built for right-handed people. Um, Everything from rifles to water fountains to just about everything um, is built for right-handed people. So Ehud is, um, different in this way. And he uses that difference to his advantage. His message from God is this 12 inches of iron. Um, and so there's this very gross description of what happens to his body with a sword. You can read that for yourself again if you want to. I'm not going to read it again. Thank you, Barbara, for taking us through that. Um, And then Ehud goes out and he closes the door and locks it. And by the time the servants come back, um, they all think he's relieving himself in his cool chamber. Um, And they waited outside till they were embarrassed. So based on the description of his death, um, they waited out there because they they smelled something. That was in there. Again, the Bible rarely gives us this level of detail about anybody. Um, We have another example of King Saul, another egotistical, self centered, destructive king who is relieving himself in the cave when David confronts him and steals some of his stuff um, to show that he's not going to kill Saul because he's the Lord's anointed. we have another instance of scatological humor with Elijah taunting the prophets of Baal, saying, maybe Baal can't hear you because Baal's on a journey. Maybe Baal can't hear you because he's taken a dump. Maybe Baal can't hear you because he's asleep. Um, we have that reference. And I really can't think of any others in the Bible, except for maybe Ezekiel or Isaiah. Um But that is something completely different. Um, But the, the, um, the very real part of the story, that's why we had to learn about how he died so that we would know why the servants wait so long to get the key to open the door and find him there dead. Ehud escapes. He passes beyond the idols. We can see this reference to idolatry of Moab and ultimately back um, to his people, where he rallies the people, and they get 80 years of peace, 80 years of peace, 80 years of, of uh, the Moabites not uh, coming into their land, stealing their food so they will starve and killing them. Um, it's hard to impose our ethics on these people who were fighting for their life, as it is in every scenario like this, And yet we still wonder, was this the plan of God? Where is God in this story? The only part of the story where God is mentioned is that um, God prospers Eglon, raises him up, gives him power and strength to oppress God's people. And then God sends him a message. Um, And the message is a dagger in his belly. So that's where God is in the story. God is beyond what we can really fathom or contain. God is always beyond our containment. If that is what we were trying to do with God, it never really works. God is a mystery, and these stories let us in on the mystery that God is at work behind the scenes, even in ways that seem to defy our imagination. The Moabite men that are killed at the end, 10,000 of them, are described as strong, able-bodied guys, um, in contrast to their king, Eglon. And there we see another commentary on the people of Moab, that this is how the world always works. The uh, prosperous king, who has conspicuous consumption and wants to impress everyone with all his power and pomp, um, is always propped up by these able-bodied people who are strong warriors. Um, This is the symbiosis of all corrupt human societies that are just focused on war and stealing and raiding and other things. Um, The people at risk are the ones that have very little power and the people that sit in the halls of power on the roofs of their palaces with, with locked doors safely away seem immune from the judgment of the world and the judgment of God, and yet they are not beyond God's judgment. The people who do terrible things with their power in this world are always subject to the judgment of God. God will always have a message for them, and that's something we can count on when we think of how futile it seems to stand up to the powers of this world that seek to destroy the creatures of God. And yet that is what we do in faith, trusting God to fight for us, trusting God to do justice when we cannot, and ultimately trusting God to send the messages that God needs to send, perhaps through us, perhaps through the left-handed people of this world. Amen. Glory to you, Lord God of our fathers. You are worthy of praise. Glory to you. Glory to you for the radiance of your holy name. We will praise and highly exalt you forever. Glory to you in the splendor of your temple. On the throne of your majesty, glory to you. Glory to you seated between the cherubim. We will praise you and highly exalt you forever. Glory to you, beholding the depths. In the high vault of heaven, glory to you. Glory to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We will praise you and highly exalt you forever. And the Creed on page 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The church remembers William Reed Huntington, which is actually really timely for this week. Um, As the Lambeth conference has started, Lambeth is the decennial, decennial, every 10 years. I'm not sure how to say that decennial, decennial, um, gathering of all the bishops of the Anglican Communion. There's about 600 bishops or 300, I think 600 bishops, 630 bishops gathering at Lambeth this week. Um, And part of that, the goal of that was to bring together um, Christians who otherwise would never really cooperate on anything or see each other as fellow Christians um, in the larger picture. It seems strange that Anglicans would have that, but before the 1960s, pretty much every Anglican province around the world was kind of doing its own thing, loosely connected to the Church of England, but um, very different and separate in many ways. So uh, the Lambeth Conference was an attempt to kind of bring people together. And William Reed Huntington was very much a part of that. He was, um, he was called the first presbyter of the church, um, was his nickname. He was the sixth, sixth rector of Grace Church in New York City, Grace Episcopal. And he provided leadership that was character, characterized by breadth, generosity, scholarship, and boldness. He was the acknowledged leader in the House of Deputies, which is we have a two-house system, a House of Bishops, House of Deputies. House of Deputies is both lay people and priests. But there he was in the House of of Deputies at General Convention and held forth in a great spirit during times of intense stress and conflict within the church. What? We had intense conflict and stress in the 1800s in the church? His reconciling spirit helped preserve the unity of the Episcopal Church in the painful days after the beginning of the schism led by the assistant bishop of Kentucky, which resulted in the formation of the REC, or Reformed Episcopal Church. There was a split as the larger northeastern Episcopal Church um, became more Anglo-Catholic and more um, open to um medieval and Roman Catholic uh styles of worship and things like that. Um a bishop split and the Reformed Episcopal Church is the was the split that happened then. Took a lot of people with him. In the House of Deputies, when he was a member from 1871 to 1907, Huntington showed active and pioneering vision in making daring proposals. As early as 1871, his motion to receive the primitive order of deaconesses began a long struggle, which culminated in 1889 and canonical authorization for that order. So our church had deaconesses. These were women deacons. They were not quite at the status of male deacons because there really weren't any male deacons then. Um, But it was a good start, an opening to women's ordination, women in leadership in our church. His parish immediately provided facilities for the new ministry of deaconesses in New York, and Huntington House became a training center for deaconesses and other women workers in the church. Christian unity was Huntington's great passion throughout his ministry. In his book, The Church Idea, 1870, he attempted to articulate the essentials of Christian unity. The grounds he proposed as a basis for unity were presented to and accepted by the House of Bishops in Chicago, in 1886, and with some slight modification, were adopted by the Lambeth Conference. There's Lambeth again. In 1888, in England, the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral became a historic landmark for the Anglican Communion. Um, I, and I, I think I erroneously said that that um, Lambeth started in the 1960s. Lambeth conference started back in the 1800s, but the formalized Anglican communion is a product of the 1960s and, and that sort of thing. But there was a Lambeth conference before that, long before that, that was very um, much a part of how our church governed. And they adopted this, this, um, this quadrilateral, Four Things to Believe. You'll, they're printed in our prayer book on page 876. If you are able to turn there, um, it's kind of worth noting that these made it into our prayer book, the Lambeth Chicago Quadrilateral, um, because it's something that originated in the American Church, which is the most diverse, denominationally continent in the world. We have more different kinds of Protestant Christians here than and just about anywhere else I can think of, definitely anywhere else. And so they thought, if we could only get all the Protestants to kind of come back together, we're all basically splits off each other, or splits off the Roman Catholic Church, we get all the Protestants together, maybe someday we could get everybody back together. Get all the Roman Catholics and Protestants together, and then maybe we get the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox together, if we work hard enough. And the possibility is there, I think, still. So the idea that there's four things every church needs to assent to, to be really Christian and be in communion. One is that, um, point one, is that the Savior's prayer, that we all may be one, that that is true and should be worked at. So that's something every Christian should agree on. Two, that if you've been baptized with water, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you are members of the Holy Catholic Church. Like, That's your church membership. People ask me, like, how do I become a member of St. Joan of Arc? You become a member of St. Joan of Arc by being baptized. That's how you become a member. Um, Now, to be on our rolls, we have to record your name and that sort of information on a document. Um, And then you're on our rolls and part of formalized part of this local expression of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But your membership in the church is at your baptism. Um, and then the last, the third point, um, that everybody should try to adapt to everybody else's um, style of worship. That everybody kind of has um, different customs and we ought to love each other and not get all worked up um, about um, our differences. Um, and that we can cooperate in a common Christianity. And then the, um, the four um, points of this quadrilateral, or like sub points, I guess, is that the things you need to be a Christian believe in the Old and New Testament as a revealed word of God, the Nicene Creed as a sufficient statement for the Christian faith, two sacraments baptism and the supper of the Lord. And all that needs to happen for it to be baptism and the Lord's Supper is using the Christ's words of institution, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and using the um, elements ordained by him, using water for baptism, using bread and some grape product, fruit of the vine for communion. And if you do those things, you're doing exactly what Jesus asked us to do. The fourth point is the sticking point. Because it says that the historic episcopate or bishops locally adapted in methods of administration to the varying needs of nations and peoples called of God into the unity of his church. So this is the point at which most Protestants cannot join us or join together, is that we are one of the few Protestant groups that really has tried to hold on to the historic line of bishops that go all the way back to Jesus. Um, Our church has done that. As best we can and that is not something that most Protestants care a whole lot about in fact even the groups that have bishops they don't really care that they're in a direct line back to the Apostles and Jesus so that's kind of our thing and that's why this never really caught on but William Reed Huntington thought it might because when he heard Jesus pray in the Gospel of John that all may be one he thought maybe we should work towards that rather than just hear it from Jesus and not do anything about it. So, I like the way he did it better than the way a lot of people didn't do it, which is sort of my model for church planting, um, is I like the way we do it better than the way we don't do it, um, which is always a good rule to follow. Um, on Monday and Holy Week, we use, and now we use uh, for Fridays, we pray a prayer that William Reed Huntington Um, revised, and sort of wrote and revised from the um, 1662 prayer book, Um, and another prayer for the sick, um, he also adapted that we pray often um, in this church. So we thank God for his witness. O Lord our God, we thank you for instilling in the heart of your servant William Reed Huntington a fervent love for your church and its mission in the world. And we pray that with unflagging faith in your promises, we may make known to all people your blessed gift of eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Mission on 100. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth,